Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. This is Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we're excited to have an ongoing conversation about issues of concern and interest to the body of Christ. Hill Country Institute Live brings guests together with you to talk about issues of vital interest in our lives today. We visit the life and works of giants of another day, such as C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and also spend time with people in ministries doing creative work to fight human trafficking, feed the poor, create quality art, be good stewards of the environment, and much more, all with the heart and mind of Christ. If you're interested in learning about the programs of the Hill Country Institute and hearing and seeing presentations from our conferences on faith and science, faith and art, and other subjects, visit hillcountryinstitute.org. We promise in this show to show the heart and mind of Christ, to treat guests and callers with respect, even if we disagree, and to be true to the historic Christian faith. Today we have two very special guests, and we're going to talk about sanctity of life issues. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, Executive Director of the Hill Country Institute, and we're excited to have an ongoing conversation about issues of concern and interest to the body of Christ. So it's my privilege today to introduce to you someone that I, I have the highest regard for, highest appreciation for the work that he's done. Uh, I always tell Joe he's one of my heroes, and he tells me not to say that, so I won't say it. But uh, Joe McElhaney has done a, a tremendous job of stepping out into the public arena and talking about sexual relationships and sexual health in a way that promotes Christian values, but not so much just as a Christian, but as a rational thinking, understanding doctor and carer of and provider of health care for many years. Joe, how are you today? Uh, Larry, I'm fine. Uh but look, um, I said don't call me a hero because I didn't step out. I got drug out into this area of um, of work, and so uh, you know you can't be a hero if you got if God drags you into something, can you? Well, I think there's heroism in staying in there too. <laughs> but anyway, you're you're one of my heroes. I really I just love what what you're doing. Oh, thanks, Tim. Um, so um, God, I think God has blessed your work in a great way. Thank you for doing it, Larry. Well, thank you, Joe. And I really, really do appreciate all you've done. Uh, Joe, from, you know, just I'm not sure people people know so much about your background, but you you were practicing in, in as a private practice, uh, OBGYN, for 20-something years before you began the, the Medical Institute for Sexual Health, right? Yeah, I started uh, medical practice in Austin in 1968 and immediately focused on infertility care because my mentor back at Baylor Medical School, where I'd done my residency uh, and, uh, and medical school uh, degree, um, was one of the real foremost, real creative thinkers in the area of infertility care and motivated me to start doing that in Austin. Um, and um, we... Uh, were there at the very start. At the, when, we got, when we got to Austin in 1968, about all we could do to help our infertile patients was to help them time intercourse. But uh, during that time from then until the time I left practice in 1995, we went from uh, just giving Clomid to doing Pergonol to doing um, laparoscopy, laser laparoscopy, microsurgery, uh, gamete interfallopian transfer, um, <clears throat> and then in vitro fertilization. I mean, it was it was, it was really a, a truly exhilarating time. Um, 
But there was really irony with it, Larry, and the irony was that at the time that we were developing all those techniques, I didn't initially develop them, but we were right at the forefront of of going from the medical schools and places where these were being developed into the use of them in private practice. We were there at the very start of that. Um, the, the irony was that we were doing that in the 70s and 80s, right when the sexual revolution was happening. Um, the irony is that uh, that the sexual revolution was causing kids to get sexually transmitted diseases. Um, the, one of the primary reasons women get infertile is, because, matter of fact, the commonest reason for a woman to be infertile, if she's the problem in the couple, is sexually transmitted disease that has damaged her fallopian tubes from infection, primarily from chlamydia. Well, sure. we were doing all these wonderful, exciting procedures, helping people at the same time that young girls and young women were getting in, uh, infertile at an alarming rate because of the sexual revolution, the diseases that were spreading from that. Um, and the reason I say I got drug out of practice into, into doing this was that I, I started seeing that at our uh, medical meetings and in the journals, nobody was talking about prevention of the most common problem for the woman in infertility and a preventable one at that. Mm-hmm. So seeing that problem, I started uh, locally really doing sex ed at Westlake High School and um, talking to some community groups both there and around the country because my book, 1,250 Healthcare Questions, had, uh, had uh, put me on somewhat of the national stage with um, you know, being on all the national TV networks and on Dr. Dobson's radio program over and over. But that gave me a great opportunity to also talk about this problem, uh, to, to not only just to educate parents and kids about the problem, but also to use that information to help guide them to the healthiest sexual behavior, which is sexual abstinence and less married. And that, so that's, that's yeah. really the, in very uh, short, uh, uh, very short story about about what happened to me. But that really went against the grain of of a, of a free society, um, a society with restraints. You know, one, freedom is one thing, but freedom without restraint and and is lic- is, is licentiousness or, or lack of uh, lack of moral fiber, and that leads well, to the sexual problems. Yeah, coming. like Leon Cass said, he was uh, the head of the. Uh, uh, I guess it started under President Bush of his ethics uh, commit, commission. He said. Uh, yeah, gravity constrains us, but without gravity, we couldn't dance. And so, although there are um, there are uh, limitations to what we can do, they're not to uh, keep us from enjoying life. In a, in a sense, they're really there so that we can enjoy life to the fullest. And uh, I think you put it right in in the <clears throat> the secular society. The the sense that there's any constraints at all is uh, is uh, an unpleasant thought, uh, and some people would almost feel like it, it flies in the face of human dignity for us to have any kind of constraints at all, where I think you and I both say that the constraints uh, actually help us achieve human dignity. Yes, dig- dignity. Uh, don't you and... think an example of that would be this Millie Cyrus uh, uh, infamous thing she did on MTV, <laughs> uh, that, where she had yeah. the freedom to do that in front of the national audience, but there was absolutely no human dignity there right. in that performance that, that she did. Yeah, loss of dignity, and and uh, and from that, just a loss of flourishing. Yeah, I that's think exactly that, right. Yeah, yeah, God, God created us to flourish. Um, yes. you know, to to be saved for eternity is is an aspect, but to be fully human. Human, 
you know, Irenaeus said that uh, the glory of God is is a man fully alive, and yeah. and I think that's that right. that, And fully alive means there are constraints mm-hmm. uh, because really, with no constraints, there's death. I think, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so. Well, anyway, what what happened was I saw all all these uh, things going on and started doing some, some speaking, and I developed a set of 100 slides. Some of them had anatomical uh, slides uh, with diseases present, and they were pretty gross, but, but they really got the message across, and people started asking me for those slides. Well, I was in private practice, and I'd, I'd you know fix up another set of slides for them, and finally I said, look, I got to get back to my practice because I had a very, very demanding practice with all this high tech stuff, and and I had lots of patients and wonderful people. I really was committed to taking care of literally as good as could happen for them, and and uh, so I started the Medical Institute for Sexual Health in 1992 for the purpose really of distributing those slides, but also sort of keeping up with the data, the scientific data, and we started as a scientific organization. Uh, I got a lot of counsel about how to do it, and we thought, well, if we started as a Christian organization, people would say, sure, you're going to recommend sexual absence and marriage because you're a Christian and it's a Christian organization and you're biasing your information. We said, no, we don't want to do that because we thought that any good science would actually support and confirm what Scripture has to say about about sexual issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so, by the way, we have never, ever found anything from science that conflicts with what Scripture would say about sex and marriage. Fascinating. Um, and so, what we've done is actually confirm what the what the what the church has been teaching for for millennia. Um, but by 1995, I started the organization in '92. By '95, um, we were uh, getting into so much research and science and and doing so much that Mary and I literally felt that God was dragging us out of practice to go on in, uh, full-time with the Medical Institute. So that's what we did starting in 1995. And I left, <clears throat> obviously, 10 years of income I could have had on the table from if I'd stayed in practice. But, you know, God's been gracious to us, and there are ways in which he opened up opportunities that were um, fun, uh, but also uh, were incredible opportunities for getting the message we at the Medical Institute had, I, you know, when I left practice, um, there was a front-page article on the Austin American Statesman with a color picture of me and my wife, and and um, about you know local doctor leaves practice to help kids. And I got a, a personal note from Governor George W. Bush, and I thought, well, it's probably just a form thing. He probably does that all the time. It's probably just printed, but it, it turns out it wasn't. And so uh, he invited me up to speak to his whole senior staff and then to his office just to speak with him personally. And he and I were together multiple times in his office. Uh, he had me fly with him around the country, around the state to talk about volunteerism while he talked about the importance of, of uh, citizens being involved. And uh, then when he was elected president, he invited me uh, and Marion to the uh, Oval Office to just talk to him and Margaret Spellings and Karen Hughes just about what he could do as president to help young people. But so you know, it's it's been it's been quite a ride, Larry, and and we're That's still great. we're still going on. We the medical institute is still involved in digging into this research, producing materials and and data for those who do sex ed. For our, I guess our primary audience have have been crisis pregnancy centers around the whole United States because they use our materials a lot. That's great, uh, Joe. As they educate yeah. uh, people about sex and mm-hmm. sexual issues. We're going to need to to break here for for a moment. Uh, 
as Joe mentioned, it's the, the Texas Institute for Sexual Health, and I encourage you to visit the, med- the Medical Institute for Sexual Health. I knew I'd do that. I'm sorry. It's Medical Institute for <laughs> Sexual Health. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I emphasize that, Larry, because we're not, a, we're not a, 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 just a tech. Our office is, our home office is Austin, but uh, we really are, uh, in a sense, a national organization, and, and even international. We have materials all over the world, really. Absolutely. Also invite, invite you to visit the hillcountryinstitute.org site. We have many talks there from our previous conferences, including Alistair McGrath, Andy Crouch, and Eugene Peterson. We'll be right back. This is Hill Country Institute Live. Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live, exploring Christ and culture. This is Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and I'm very privileged today to have Joe McElhaney, founder and board chairman of the Medical Institute for Sexual Health, with me. Joe uh, was just on, so I won't say much, but um, he's uh, just had a terrific impact on how people think about about sexual relations, how people think about sex in our culture. So, welcome back, Joe. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Larry. I greatly appreciate you letting me. Be with you. Thank you, Joe. And and I want to go back to your time in private practice just a little bit. Um, you you began in private practice in 1968, right? Right. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And then in, in Austin. Uh huh. And then in 1973, Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. And uh, as I understand it, abortion wasn't something that was really part of your practice, but it was something that you were around and. You know, would, would you talk a little bit about about how your experience and, and what you began to think about abortion? Uh, yeah, I will, Larry. You know, I haven't told this story a whole lot uh, because it's one I'm ashamed of. Um, I, I guess we've all done things for, for which we're really thankful for Christ's forgiveness and grace to us. Grace is everything, um, isn't it? I mean, it, there's, there's nothing that even compares to the word grace. Yeah. Well, you know, Roe versus Wade um, happened in 1973, and it was just sort of a wham to those of us in practice because we hadn't been around abortion. Uh, it was back alley things. Uh, we knew who the abortionist in Houston was where I trained. Uh, we knew that people went to Mexico sometimes, uh, but we didn't know anything about it at all. Never had thought about it. And so, um, as soon as Roe versus Wade happened, I had um, uh, about three times in a row, as I remember. Uh, maybe been twice, but it could have been three. Um, I had doctors who had referred patients to me refer patients uh, for abortion. The one I specifically remember, the re- when I, there was one who had been exposed to uh, German measles, which can, can produce uh, real abnormalities in the baby. She, did, she hadn't gotten German measles, just been exposed to it. Uh, another lady was sent by a psychiatrist because she was very depressed, and, and he said if she didn't, uh, have an abortion. She had the baby they'd throw her into the uh, insane asylum, that we, mm. or whatever mm-hmm. you call it back yeah. then. Uh, but I mean, the, the implication was she was severely depressed and was really going to be bad off if she had to have a baby. Well, Roe versus Wade happened, and so um, I, before I did one, I called up and talked to one of the most eminent Old Testament professors in Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a very conservative seminary. He's clearly a theologically very conservative. And he said, well, he said, you know, the baby is called a nephish when it's in the uterus still, and it's really not considered truly fully human. And so I guess if it's for the best of that of the patients, it's okay to go ahead and do it. I called the Christian Medical Dental Society. I actually remember 
the the uh, person on the phone said, we don't get into stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It really was just sort of an angry thing. I'd even bring it up with them. And she said, we're a, so, we're a, we're a I forget how, a Christian fellowship organization. We're not a, a, an ethics organization. And so I said, well, you know, there's basically no direction about what to do. And, and then with it, basically an encouragement of this professor from Dallas Seminary, I went ahead and did one abortion and uh, for the lady with had been exposed to German measles. Then um, I think it was the one that had been referred uh, for, uh, oh, I know what it was. I, then I did that second one. And uh, when I was doing it, I saw these little bitty things look like tiny worms, and I realized that was the baby's intestines that were coming out, and then an arm and a leg. And, you know, you, you see these pins that people wear that show the little bitty foot of a, of a baby when it's about 12 weeks long, I think. Uh, and let me tell you that when you see that in real life, you say, I, I basically said, I don't care what that theologian said. This is a baby. This is a human mm-hmm. being I'm killing. It's so evident. Uh, and right away I got referred another another patient from that psychiatrist who said the same thing. This lady's so depressed. I looked at her and said, she may be depressed, but I'm not killing that baby, and I'm never doing that again. And, of course, I repented about that before God Almighty, and I'm so sorry that I did that. But... Uh, it's it's a it's a it's basically just killing babies. And you know, Larry, I've thought about this. Um, you know, if, if if we were to take the little uh, baby kangaroos or little or even little baby possums out of their mother's pouches and line them up on a board on national TV, and someone took a hammer and just crushed one after the other, there would be an outrage in this country that you could never, ever put down. It would be a firestorm. Mm-hmm. The only reason that people can have abortions and that it can be approved by, the, by our society and by lawyers is because it's done in the, in the privacy of that uterus where people can't see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, you know, I've, I've um, you know, and that's just the physical part of it. We're not even talking about the fact those are human beings that have a soul and uh, how it can really hurt the mother herself. People are totally denying the fact that women who've had abortions are more likely to have other health problems, more likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, more likely to have depression. Uh, you know, so, so we're really hurting both the baby, killing the baby, and then also uh, damage, uh, frequently damaging mama who has the abortion in the first place. Sure. Joe, I appreciate you sharing that story. I know it. I know it's um, it's very personal. It's, and, it's horrible. And, and, you know, and, I, but you know, you, you, we we thank goodness we, that Jesus forgives us. Yeah, let me. But let I, me. you know, I'd like for people to know that 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 when 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 that abortion is doing that, he he's killing a child. There's just no question about it. And if you take that child, put it. You know, these are horrible pictures where they put the aborted babies back together. Are actually true. I don't really advocate those things, uh, but let me tell you, those pictures are true. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that for me, being pro-life, it, it's always encouraging to hear that someone who's been involved at any level with with the abortion world and industry has seen that it's not right and, yeah, and that it right. is a human being. By the way, Larry, uh, in speaking of visualizing these babies, uh, you know, as I think everybody knows, the, the opinion toward abortion has been changing uh, toward saving the babies and not doing abortions. 
And I think that's primarily due to sonograms because with the sonogram, mom can see the baby, that it's not just a blob of tissue. And so for those that are listening that would want to help women uh, realize what they're contemplating, killing a child, I would highly advocate they support these groups that are distributing sonogram machines to to, um, pregnancy resource centers because that's one of the most effective things that's ever happened, just because it's reality. It really is showing that it really is a child. Picture's worth Uh, a thousand words. something that's immorally legal or mean. It's just showing them what's there. Yeah. Yeah, and those uh, sonograms are being installed in more and more places, and and we've got uh, some additional protection under Texas law. Yeah. But, yeah, that's exactly right. You mean with uh, as far as the clinics are concerned that yes. do abortion? Yes, that's why I'm understanding. I don't have the full details on how it works, but but I believe that the the sonogram has has been, you know, greatly uh, under consideration and and is is part of the new laws. We we'll go into that another time. Yeah, that's but, true. But in terms of the uh, impact, uh, yeah. a mother, you know, a, a pregnant woman who sees that just just. Those those feet you're talking about, those hands that the whole mm-hmm. form of the human form is very evident in the sonogram, isn't it? It is, and you know I'm no philosopher, but um, <clears throat> I think every time we try to transcend, uh, you know, here I guess here's what I'm trying to say: um, the, the the real real secular attitude um, is saying, well, that little baby in there is just like a growth. It's just almost like a tumor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nothing. Uh, and if we can transcend this thing, this physical thing that's happened to this woman, uh, then her life will be okay. Um, but I think what happens when we try to transcend these real things in life, we really end up transgressing uh, human dignity and what is good about about humanity. Uh, and I think this is a great example where if we follow God's guidance, not kill, then we're more likely to be whole people, even if it does result in the birth of a baby that's inconvenient. That baby is a child, a human being, mm-hmm. and can grow into somebody that really respects, loves God, and does good for the world. Certainly. Even if they have Down syndrome or other disabilities, yep. Yep. God God can bless them and bless the people that they're around. through yep. them. Often even more so than if they were totally normal. Right. In, in the sense of being normal that we think of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a questionable term anyway, isn't it? It is, sure is, I'll tell you that. But, uh, yeah. Joe, in, you, in, your, in, in the work at the, at the Medical Institute for Sexual Health, you've mm-hmm. also uh, thought a lot about and done research on how human sexuality is best expressed and what happens when sexu- there are sexual relations outside of marriage and people make connections and what mm-hmm. happens in the brain. Uh, it's it's really a continuum between that and that sexual relation side and the human person that's formed in the womb, isn't it? Well, yeah, uh, very much so. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, one thing that I might uh, mention uh, is a book that uh, that I did with the present president of the Medical Institute named Frida Bush. Uh, Frida and I wrote a book called Hooked, and. Uh, you know, reflecting, this came out about, what, four years ago? Larry, I forget. Yes, exactly. that's about right. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, anybody that, for example, reads the Wall Street Journal, you'll see articles in the Wall Street Journal all the time about the brain and, and how it does this and how we've learned this by looking in the brain at, with MRIs and, and all this stuff. This little book, Hooked, was probably one of the first books that came out. 
who that that laid out a lot of information about the way the brain functions. Uh, let me just give two examples, okay? Um, one is that uh, we know from the studies that Jake Ede did back, one of the, some of the earliest studies about what's going on in the brain, he did back in the early 90s and finally published about in the mid-90s, showing that the adolescent brain isn't fully mature until about the age of 25. And the part that matures last is the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that allows us to do moral reasoning, that gives us foresight, and allows us to, to basically make good judgment decisions. That, that part of the brain uh, does, is not even physically completely there until about the mid-20s. So we, it, so we really are violating our, our young people. We say, well, look, just whatever you feel like is okay to do, just do it, because they don't have the ability to have the foresight to know what their action today can do to them in the future. And what we say in the book and otherwise is that it takes adults to fill in a part of the adolescent brain that's missing. So uh, we need to take our, our place with kids to help give them guidance, even sometimes when they look at us with that stupid look. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I might point out, and there are multiple things in this book that I think people would find interesting, that I find interesting, is that there um, that our brains are molded by what we experience. Uh, the synapses will grow and strengthen uh, if we experience something and we like it and we do it again and again. That part of the brain actually grows. One example, people who play the violin a lot, concert violinists, if they do studies of the brain, the part of the brain that controls the fingers of the left hand that work the strings of the violin, that part of the brain that controls those fingers is thicker because those synapses and those neurons there have grown and developed in a more uh, in a, lar- in a bigger way than than those of people like me that can't play anything. Um, so the brain molds um, and. Uh, it molds in response to experience. Well, sex is, a, is an incredible experience for any any human being, uh, and if kids get involved in sex, it molds their brains to see that as a normal. As, as uh, it molds their brain to see uh, that sex is a normal thing for them, and and so it, it ends up producing this pattern of behavior, if you will, almost an addiction to sex for adolescents because their brain has been molded that way. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating, though, that what we can do to ourselves uh, with unhealthy uh, things in our life and then what we can do for ourselves with, with healthy behavior, how that can be molded in a positive way, too. Sure, and the brain the brain adapts. Mm-hmm. Joe, um, we're going to have to talk about that in more detail another time because I think there's so much more there to develop and bring out. So thank no, you. There really is. And it's also yeah. very helpful to parents, too, to help them understand about their kids more. Yes, and I would, I would recommend Joe's, Joe and Frida's books, Hooked and Girls Uncovered, uh, to mm-hmm. learn more about the impact of sexuality and uh, both on the brain, on your personal relationships, and just on the impact uh, physically. Joe, I, I, I'm so sorry to be out of time. Uh, I have been delighted to have you here. I hope we'll be able to do this again and talk in more detail. But uh, this is Hill Country Institute Live, exploring Christ and culture. And we hope you'll be with us again another time. Thank you.